Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The content that's explicit will not come with a warning except for this. So bear in mind what I am saying. This show is explicit content. Hello, it's Saturday. It's Mike Pesca. It's The Gist. And this is the Saturday show. And you know, quite sadly, this is the first Saturday show that's not able to be listened to by the Queen of England, or that will be listened to by the Queen of England, for all I know. You can't get individual listening habits. I assume we could have done more corgi coverage just to really rope her in. I wonder how many podcasts the Queen ever listened to. Sad, sad, but we we soldier on, stiff upper lip and such. On the Saturday show, we bring you a segment from the past week and a segment that didn't air in the past week. And usually, the segment that didn't air in the past week, the thing is, it aired in the past, I don't know, a couple years of the gist. No, not this time. We're going to bring you an heretofore unaired portion of the interview I did with Susan Orlean. Susan Orlean was on the show on Thursday to talk about her hosting of the Book Exploder podcast. And as part of that talk, there was a little bit where I pulled a sentence or two from one of the obituaries she's been writing for The New Yorker. She's been a staff writer there since 1992. And in I asked her about her choices and phrases and choices about phrases. Uh, I do more of that. I do more of that with these columns, which are branded as the afterword column in The New Yorker. And we just talked to a great writer who likes to think about writing, about writing. That will come up after the spiel that I did about Juul, Juul cigarettes, vaping, e-cigarettes, the four loco of inhalables. We're allowed to have fun fruit flavors when it comes to gum that look like a multi-hued zebra, but not so much with inhalables. So first that spiel, then that Susan Orlean. And now the spiel. If it seems like I'm on edge lately, well, now you know why. Following some breaking news now, electronic cigarette maker Juul Labs has agreed to pay nearly $440 million. This is part of a settlement with 34 states and territories. It's also rounding the product's marketing, specifically targeting teenagers. I can't get my fix of raspberry bubblegum vape. I've been jonesing to put an electric stick of banana strawberry swirl between my lips and suck, just like Lauren Bacall in To Have and Have Not. You know how to vape off a mint licorice jewel, don't you? You just put your lips together and blow. Or possibly suck. I've never vaped. Jewel Labs. Jewel Labs. You got to say it with the ooh, because it has two U's. They kind of lost me with the two U's, but they got me back with the Labs part. Very serious. And they're seriously paying $438 million. That's million with an M to 33 states and Puerto Rico on top of the 87 million they paid to four states. So what have we learned? The four states lawyers seem better because, you know, if you go by the cash per state calculation, they got more. But also the lesson is you just can't in America today, you can't entice kids with those sweet, sweet flavors. Kids love the sweet flavors. Which come in flavors like watermelon and blue raz. Fruit, mint, and dessert cigarette flavors. Blueberry cobbler to strawberry lemonade. 
Juul on their website responded in November 2018, they write, in response to a reported increase in youth use of vapor products, we suspended the sale of mango, fruit, cucumber, and cream flavored Juul in retail. In 2019, October, we suspended the online sale of mango, fruit, cucumber, and cream flavored Juul pods on Juul.com. Okay, so for a year, they wouldn't sell them in retail stores to teens who have never heard of a retail store, in November 19th. However, they suspended the sale of mint-flavored Juul pods in retail and on the dot-com. And then in July 2020, they suspended the sale of classic tobacco-flavored Juul pods in retail and on Juul.com. I don't know actually what they have left. What are they still selling? I think Altria, who bought Juul for 30, uh, I think it was $38 billion, with the valuation now at $1.3 billion, is also wondering, what is exactly our business model? Is it just paying out lawsuits to states and having an ever-decreasingly robust e-commerce site? Yeah, goes back to the kids and the flavors. Oh, they love the flavors. They have the Snozzleberry and the Sniz Fizzle and the Choco Doco Duncans. I could just hear the pitch from their spokes character. She'd be a cross between Joe Camel and Willy Wonka and that futuristic pink-haired girl from the Icelandic children television show, Lonely Town. You know who else loves the flavors, however, besides the kids? Turns out everyone, humans, people. Penn State has researched what gets people into vaping, and the answer is, in large part, the flavors. Here's Penn State professor Jonathan Folds in a video which, for some reason, has your daily affirmation, hike before breakfast, inspirational music behind it. Our research has followed a large number of adult, long-term e-cigarette users who were former smokers. So we are, we've been following a group of people who've successfully quit smoking and switch to e-cigarettes. So we know that that can be a step in the right direction. What Folds is saying is that can be a step in the right direction. That is literally what he's saying. I wasn't sure you could hear the Scottish accent above the guy reaching a craggy peak and breathing in the cool mountain air and thinking, thanks, Chantix. But PSU, Penn State University, and its Cancer Research Center have done a lot of work and examination of e-cigarettes, more so than even a TGIF waiter out back on a five-minute break. And they have surveyed e-cigarette users at a couple times, once between 2012 and 2014, and then between 2017 and 2019. And they say, oh, what changed about your preferred flavors? And it turns out the people started vaping in tobacco flavor, they fell off. They didn't stop vaping. They changed flavors to more fruity flavors. Fruit flavors and fun flavors and sweet flavors went like this. The fruit flavors essentially remained stable. 23% in each survey preferred the fruit flavors. But the chocolate candy or sweet flavors increased from 16% to 29%, quite an increase. By the way, the flavor preference was indeed classified using the Penn State three-step flavor classification method. I told you these guys are serious. I'm not exactly sure what the Penn State three-step flavor classification method is. You take your flavored vape, you stick it in some gum, you twirl it around in pixie dust, and then yum, 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 yum. By the way, they had to, this was in the abstract that I read of their survey, do cinnamon red hots count as a candy or a spice? The answer is a candy. But when you think about it, of course adults like the flavors, the same as adolescents like the flavors, because 
We live in America, and the adults we are talking about are Americans. And American adults are essentially adolescents. Cargo shorts and Comic-Con and the word adulting used by a 28-year-old and Disney Plus announcing that over 50% of their subscribers do not have kids. It's something of a paradox. Marvel movies are for children, but the adults who love them most are least likely to be tapped for reproductive purposes. Worst stereotype ever. You're right, comic book guy. I kid, but I love. But you still have to admit that it's not 1962 anymore. The drink of choice isn't a scotch neat. It's a white claw sloppy. And Jewel quite clearly wasn't selling all of its $38 billion worth of e-cigs to just teens. Furthermore, sidelining Jewel, you know what it did? It just opened the schoolhouse gates to a new flavor player, Puff Bar, which uses synthetic nicotine to skirt FDA rules. See if you can tell the ages of the Puff Bar average user from the voices and tone of these TikTok videos and also the fact that they're TikTok videos. Just found this fresh new Puff Bar still packed. Thanks to whoever left it there for me. A Puff Bar that has light in colors. Yes or no? But how do people smoke a 3,500 Puff Bar in like two? Three days. This motherfucker wants a puff bar so bad. There's legit a fucking active crime scene right here. So while Jewel was busy taking a rap on the knuckles, Puff isn't even made to have a timeout in the naughty chair. And the result is that fewer people, adults, teen, everyone, is using e-cigarettes. So that's a good thing, right? Well, maybe, but maybe not. Folds and other researchers cite pretty compelling evidence that the majority of e-cigarette users have transitioned from much, much more dangerous light-with-fire type cigarettes or cigarettes or whatever you call them, cancer sticks, transitioned from those very bad ones to the much less bad e-cigarettes. It is an example of a groundswell of public sentiment and political incentivization against the villain of the moment without properly considering the true public health consequences of reaching for the lowest hanging fruit, even if that fruit is a delicious mango blueberry nectarine. Though I do think we are all mature enough to realize that this is the case. Now let us don our cute rompers, jump on the razor scooter, and make it to our adult kickball league. Susan Orlin is the new host of the Book Exploder podcast. She began contributing to The New Yorker in 1987. She's been a staff writer for 30 years there. Among her books are The Bullfighter Checks Her Makeup, My Encounters with Extraordinary People, and The Orchid Thief. She's been writing obituaries of strange people and, as we talked about on the show on Thursday, strange or captivating animals. And so there is a, a craft to this, a skill to this, some strategy to this, and I wanted to ask her all about it. So we jump right in with me reading a line or two from one of her recent obituaries, her afterward column, and we take it from there. Me and Susan Orling. In addition to being an occasional male model and a venereal disease activist, Clark was the proprietor of the Goose Hollow Inn, a cluttered, cozy tavern with wooden booths and Uzi Rubens that since its opening in 1967 had been one of the most popular hangouts in Portland. 
there's a sentence. <laughs> the, uh, you do the, I think you do the thing where you tuck the venereal disease activist in there. It refers to um, an earlier portion of Bud Clark's life. Uh, that's I, I read that as funny. Did you mean for it to be whimsical and funny? Yes, I did. And I think that I am a sucker for unlikely juxtaposition. I just, and, you know, it, it's just, I can't resist. I can't resist the, um, and maybe because in a way it's also illustrative of the fact that people are in themselves usually full of unlikely juxtapositions. Certainly Bud Clark was that person. And I, I love, I also, and this is where, you know, I very, on a very technical level, I feel like you always want to poke the reader a little bit every once in a while to make sure they're awake. Mm. If that makes sense mm -hmm. that, um, you want to, you know how, when your kids, you're, um, under the impression that you could write a paper for school where the first page is legit and then it's all gobbledygook and gibberish and that nobody right. would notice. Right. And, and you, and you hit the page limit by screwing with the margins. I've been there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I think that, um, I like tugging on the reader's sleeve at regular intervals to sort of make sure they're paying attention and to make sure they're not kind of dutifully reading, but their mind is somewhere else. And I think throwing in those surprises is my way of saying, you're, you're still paying attention, right? You're, yeah. you're still reading. And rewarding them for doing so, yeah. Yeah, and making them feel like, boy, I better really pay attention because there's a lot going on here. I mean, it doesn't just, I mean, I think, a lot of stories in the beginning are very, um, you know, they're top heavy with interesting information. And then they just get to cruising altitude and they can become kind of tedious. It's just like filling space. And you don't get those nice rewards of the unexpected juxtaposition, the fact that you didn't count on or the the sort of um, surprise that keeps you more engaged with the with the material. Do you then go back and rewrite and pay attention to not the ch f the lead off two chapters, but the you know anti penultimate graph to make sure those still have firecrackers in them? Oh, absolutely. I think that the it, it's such a um, common writing problem that you work really hard at writing your lead and crafting it finely and having it full of, you know, elegance and charm and humor and so forth. And then you are just kind of, you, you just lose that momentum and it makes sense. I mean, you, well, the lead is very hard. You work really hard at making it good. But I think that that's where you lose readers. They read the lead, they start going into the body of the story, and it just feels like, eh, I don't know. It's not that, it's like you've sort of shot your wad in the 
the lead and and I don't know whether the writer is tired or whether their enthusiasm for the story kind of peters out, but I think I think that's why a lot of people feel that stories are too long. Yeah. Because they're they're not getting the the delight and the the little bang as they go past the first 500 words. I am therefore going to guess that while you're probably a generous reader and uh, a voracious reader, you also might get bored pretty easily. And that I'm just extrapolating from my own experience doing radio. You might get bored a little easily with subpar writing that might piss you off. And therefore you might vow not to do it yourself. Um, absolutely. I mean, I'm a, an avid reader, but I get, um, I, and I wouldn't say my attention span is short, but I get very, um, I'm very impatient when the energy of a lead isn't sustained. Mm -hmm. And obviously the lead is full of the most, um, you know, in terms of pure new material in the lead, you're getting all the new material. But um, I feel like it's at that thousand word mark where it's very easy to bail out of a lot of stories because you you just think, well, I don't know. I think I've read all the good stuff. Yeah. And there is a way, especially with magazine writing, where they start off with the compelling, maybe it's because of movies, but they start off with a scene. It's really compelling. There's action. And then there's a break, a page break, And we go back and we find out who the character is and it just settles into the expected. And that has become a cliche. And that is something uh, uh, that really turns me off these days of many much magazine writing. Maybe it's because editors have aren't as skilled or rewarded as they used to be. Right. Well, I think that, um, first of all, the obsession with length is a little misplaced right the whole like long reads thing i mean i like what those guys do but there's no reason in and of itself to celebrate something that's long versus something that's punchy and short i i absolutely agree and i think sometimes you've got material for a really good two thousand word story and your some sense of um importance makes you think it should be 5,000 words and it's really boring. Um, and you don't have the material to sustain that energy and that level of interest. So, but also, you know, I remember when I used to write for Rolling Stone and there was such a formula for, um, and this isn't exclusive to Rolling Stone, but the celebrity profile yeah. had this formula that I'm sure you're, well familiar with which is you have sort of kind of a punchy sexy lead and then there's the white line break and then it's joe blow was born mm-hmm. on blah 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 and it's like oh my god you are now you have now <laughs> entered the super boring gotta put this stuff in there i'm just gonna like slap it down get it out of the way. Where was he born? How did his career begin? Who was his mentor? 
and it's so lifeless and and it's and i do think if i'm any uh example of this i think that's where so many people bail out of stories they just feel like ah yeah boring and i i can't blame them so to me while a lead is extremely important the danger zone is when you segue into the body of the story where your energy has has sort of waned. So let me go back to um, the obituary of the Portland Tavern owner. By the way, I know you lived in Portland for a while. Did you know him? Did you go to Bug Clark's Tavern? I did go to his tavern and he wasn't the mayor. In fact, at that time, the idea that he would someday be the mayor was, you know, comical. I mean, he was a he was a bartender. <laughs> well, that was that was back when uh, uh, Portland. Well, I think you put it well. It was sort of uh, he became the quintessential ma- mayor of Portland. He was aligned to where his city was heading, and maybe it seems ridiculous because we see where the city has headed and it doesn't seem like a guy who maybe doesn't take himself too seriously. I don't think of Portland as the place where people don't take themselves too seriously. Right. Although back then, he, it, you know, it's a different city now for sure. But yeah. back then it, it was uh, still a city that was very much uh, below the radar in a way that made it possible for a bartender to become the mayor. So the thing I wanted to ask you was, without Cozy, do we have Uzi, a cluttered, cozy tavern with wooden booths and Uzi Rubens? Uh, Absolutely not. Um, It's part of the music of the sentence. And I'm perhaps overly sensitive to the way things actually sound like to the ear even though uh, the majority of people will be reading these things on the page. But um, to me, part of the experience of reading is very rhythmic and musical. And the, the, propel, the sort of propulsive nature of a story that pushes you through it is occurring on this level that you're not really noticing, which is these um, bridges between words and and a, a sort of rhyming rhythmic momentum um, that to me is really important. Um, and I read everything I write out loud a lot before I consider it done. I mean, I would never want to write something where someone well, actually, that's not true. I did write a story once where I had the first two paragraphs written like a Dr. Um, Seuss story. <laughs> and, you know, I had the rhythm, I very intentionally had the rhythm sort of match to Dr. Seuss rhythms. Um, but I, again, I don't think you want the reader to go, oh, I see what you're doing. You know, I, I don't think you want people, you want them to savor it and feel like, oh, that sentence was fun to read, rather than thinking, oh, these two words, I see, they, 
you know, they have the same sort of fundamental unit of sound and they're sort of repeating. So it's as if you want, it's almost the way um, you want clothing, you want to wear clothing that makes people say, oh, you look good rather than, oh, that's a nice dress. Right. You want the effect rather than the process to be obvious. This is probably apocryphal, but they always said the difference between Pericles and Cicero as an orator was people would hear Cicero and say, what a brilliant oration. And people would hear Pericles and say, that guy's right. Let's go to war. That's interesting. But it's a, that's a great example. I think that there are, again, you know, to also look at music this way, I think that my guess is most musicians would want you to hear a song and be left with a particular emotional payoff rather right. than going, oh, that was interesting the way they use the guitar. Right. So the, with some with some prog rock, I wonder, I wonder if they don't want us to be impressed with the fact that they know Bach to that level. So one last obituary that you've written that I want to ask you about. It's about, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing her last name as she pronounced it, Mary Cocaine. Yes, yes. So Mary Cocaine was the was the nonagenarian proprietess of Table Talk Pies. And you know Table Talk Pies, they're sold in almost every 7-Eleven or every supermarket, and they have a little cellophane window, and you can see the pie in there. And it's like a tiny little version of an actual bona fide pie. Was it... It must have been the combination of the name and maybe Worcester, Massachusetts and the product that inspired you to focus on her as an obituary. Yeah, I mean, I've got to admit to a very immature reaction when I first saw her obituary. And I I can't even remember where I saw it. I mean, she was not somebody who got national attention, but I saw her name and I thought, oh, my God, there's someone named Mary Cocaine. Mary T. Cocaine. <laughs> it was so funny. And of course, interesting that her son changed his name back to the original Greek, which was Cocinus. And this was at Ellis Island, someone at Ellis Island thinking it was pretty funny to change their Greek name Cocinus to Cocaine, but they kept it for generations. Um, but this combination of you know, table talk pie, it just makes you laugh when you think about it. And the idea that there was a family that has as its legacy table talk pies, you know, it's there these like almost silly little things, although not so silly when you see how many they sell. I mean, they're they're phenomenally successful. Yeah. And I would imagine there was there was no amount well. There was no amount of mockery in that obituary, and I don't know if families ever contact you afterwards, but if they did, I can't imagine there were anything, but please, that you gave prominence to their actually very important and impactful mother and matron of this uh, burgeoning food empire. Yeah, in fact, I had a really nice experience doing that. That was one of my earliest obits for The New Yorker, and when I called her son, he was puzzled. I, I think he felt like, how did, how, how did you come across 
my mother's name and what makes you think that the New Yorker audience would be interested? And I said, well, I, you know, I came across it sort of accidentally. What I do these days is look for obituaries. So I'm, I'm reading local papers and digging around. And I said, but, you know, to me, she was a sort of an example of a particular era in this country where she should have taken over the company. But she was a woman of a certain age where women didn't take over companies. So she was thwarted, you know, and it's a classic story of a certain sort of um, trajectory that to me was very interesting and, and exemplary in, in many ways. But also, you know, uh, part of my point of doing these obituaries is to highlight people who wouldn't get noticed on a national platform. And yet, in her case, Table Talk Pies are very well known. It's just that we've never thought, oh, who's behind Table Talk Pies? I mean, I, but there was something about her life that was instantly familiar and that made it very interesting to me. Yes. And to quote you to you, you're writing about Worcester, but not to draw too close a parallel to Mary Tana Cocaine's life. But like Mary, the city had been denied its due. And so you gave them both and the company their due. Yeah. And, you know, for her name to be Mary Tana Cocaine. <laughs> right. That's what the T stands for. Tana Cocaine. I forgot. <laughs> it's just... It was it was too much. And well, it was changed from the Greek. It was originally Kilo. <laughs> right. But they felt that that was flashy. Too on the nose, as it were. <laughs> exactly. But and, I mean, it really was funny that, um, you know, that was also another interesting sort of sociological point that in an era where people didn't want to have a Greek sounding last name. And now her son, in a very different era of this country, thank goodness, is proud to reclaim his original Greek name, um, Kokinus, which, you know, that, that in itself, I thought was a really interesting bit of sociology. Susan Orlean is a staff writer for The New Yorker and the host of the new Book Exploder podcast. And that's it for the Saturday show. Thank you to Joel Patterson, the senior producer, and Corey Wara, the assistant producer, who they both know I like to change things up and sometimes introduce them in reverse order. And I shall talk to you on Monday. <laughs>